Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet bringing the world's top experts right to you. Introducing your hosts, Matt Bodner and Austin Fable. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with over 5 million downloads and listeners just like you in over 100 countries. In this interview, we dig deep into how you can navigate huge life transitions called life quakes with our guest, Bruce Feiler. Very relevant topic for now. Obviously, this is being uh, recorded in the middle of a pandemic. There's a lot of life changes happening, so we were very happy to have Bruce on to discuss how we can handle these transitions to whatever life may be like after this pandemic and during as well. You know, in the past, people thought navigating transitions was really an art. However, as Bruce is going to share in this interview, it's actually much more of a science. We also dig into how to find meaning in life and much, much more with our guest, Bruce Feiler. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying our interviews with the world's top experts? I hope so. And if so, you need to head to successpodcast.com and sign up for our email list. You'll receive a ton of exclusive subscriber content, as well as our free course we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. You'll get that and so much more value and content on a weekly basis directly from myself, Matt, and the rest of our team. Sign up now at successpodcast.com, or if you're on the move, no worries. Just text 44222 to SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, on your phone to subscribe on the go. Last week, we dug into how to become an effective leader and crack the leadership code with Alain Hunkins. If you want to know how to become a more confident and impactful leader, check out that interview today. Now, a bit of a personal announcement. Matt and I read every piece of mail you send our way. We also read every single form you submit from the website. And one of the biggest requests we've gotten in the past month 
is that Austin improve his audio quality. Some saying it quite politely, some just saying Austin's audio quality sucks. And I'm here to tell you I understand and I sympathize and we're going to fix it. I've got a new mic on the way, so expect the audio quality for my interviews to skyrocket here in the next week. But we do appreciate you reaching out with the feedback. That's how we continuously improve the show. We read every piece that comes our way. So thank you for your feedback and rest assured it's being corrected. Now back to Bruce. Bruce Feiler is an author, speaker, and television personality. He is the author of 15 books, including, now get this, six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. He's the presenter of two primetime series on PBS and the inspiration for the drama series Council of Dads on NBC. Bruce's two TED Talks have been viewed more than two million times, and in his newest book, Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age, Bruce describes his journey across America, collecting hundreds of life stories and exploring how we can navigate the growing number of life transitions that we experience with greater purpose and skill. Without further ado, here is our interview with Bruce Feiler. Bruce, welcome to the Science of Success. Thank you, Austin. Thank you for having me. Nice to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you on. And I think, you know, your book, Life's in the Transitions, is such a timely release right now. And I want to dig in. But before we do, go ahead and just give us a little bit of your background. I mean, I know you've written six consecutive New York Times bestsellers. You've got quite the portfolio. So just for listeners who may not be familiar with your past work, just tell us a little bit about your journey. I grew up in Savannah, Georgia. So I grew up around storytelling. Like that's always been a huge part of my life. And I left the South and went North to college. And I found that I learned more about myself as a Southerner by leaving the South and going to the North. And this was back in the eighties in the age of discount airfare. And I thought, well, I should learn about myself as an American. So I moved to Japan and I was living with a family in the middle of nowhere. I was the only foreigner in a town of 50,000 people. I was kind of like the town wow. pet. And I started <laughs> writing letters home. You probably don't remember this, Austin, but there was this thing called paper. Like you used to actually <laughs> write letters. And in fact, airmail paper was very thin and there were no lines to it. And the back of every pad of airmail paper used to have lines so you could keep a straight line. And you have to stick it in and then you would go underneath the next line. <laughs> so I wrote a whole series of letters home like, you're not going to believe what happened to me. And when I got back to Georgia six months later, everywhere I went, people said, I loved your letters. And I was like, great. Have we met? Wow. And it turned out that my grandmother had Xeroxed them and passed them around and they went viral in the sort of 1980 sense of the word. And I thought, wow, if this is that interesting to all these people, I should write a book about this. I didn't know anyone who'd ever written the book. And it doesn't really happen this way, but I sold my first book at 24. And this is the only thing I've ever done since. So I kind of discovered early in my life what I wanted to do. I did it for no money in my 20s. I wrote books about Japan and uh, England. I spent a year as a circus clown. I moved to Nashville, not far from where you are um, as we speak, wrote a book about country music, spent a year traveling around with Garth Brooks and Winona and a bunch of old young stars. Somewhere while I was living in Nashville, I got very interested in the Bible because of maybe the country music of it all. And I thought I should know more about the Bible. So I took my Bible off my shelf and put it by my bed and it sat there untouched for a couple of years. And then I went to see an old friend in Jerusalem. And on my first day, my friend said, over here is this controversial neighborhood. And over there is the rock where Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac. And I thought, whoa, these are real places you can touch and feel. And it's funny, you talk about evidence-based success. I'm like, wait a minute, there's evidence of these stories? Like, I was kind of mixing those things in my mind. And so I thought, well, here's an idea. What if I travel along the route 
and read the Bible along the way. So no one thought this was a good idea, but I did it anyway. I climbed Mount Ararat looking for Noah's Ark and across the Red Sea. I tasted manna and I wrote a book called Walking the Bible that boom, like just became a thing. We'd spent a year and a half on the bestseller list. I was a joke on the Tonight Show. I was a question on Jeopardy. I mean, it was just everything happened. And I did this back and forth in my 30s. I ended up writing a series of books and hosting a bunch of television. And that was my life. And it might have been my life until now. I got married. I had children. But then in my 40s, I just got walloped by life. And that really is sort of what set me off on this journey. So I want to dig in more to the recent journey, but I've heard a rumor. Are you a big fan of Joseph Campbell? Well, yes and no. I mean, I do like the idea of old wisdom and new stories. And I like the idea that you can tease out certain sort of themes and patterns and stories and that they affect the stories of our lives. But there's also something about Campbell that I'm a bit grumpy about, which is the rigidity of the hero's journey that every journey has to follow a kind of certain path. Already that's been criticized as not really applying to the paths of many women. And so kind of what became a lot of the foundation of this new book was a little bit pushing back against some of Campbell. So in some ways I'm influenced by him, but in some ways Hmm. I'm pushing back against him. Yeah, that's a great insight there. It's been a hot minute since I've read a lot of Joseph Campbell's work, but I do have The Hero of a Thousand Faces and Power of Myth, although admittedly a little bit more high level probably than yourself. So let's dig in here. Tell us about the journey that kind of kicked you off to writing Life is in the Transitions. I know that you took a cross-country tour, interviewed hundreds of people about transitions in their lives, but what kind of kicked off this journey for you? So I was saying earlier, kind of the way I think about this now, and this grows out of the conversation we were just having about Joseph Campbell, is I think of my life as having a linear path, okay? I discovered what I wanted to do early. I did it for no money. I had some success. I got married and I got children. That's the kind of fantasy of the fairy tale, the superhero, the kind of iconic ascending life story that we were all told and many of us would like to believe is the life we're going to live. But then I just got walloped. My life. As you know, I got cancer as a 43-year-old new dad. I asked a group of friends to form a council of dads and wrote a book about that. It became an NBC series this year. I almost went bankrupt in the recession. My family owned real estate and that was hit very hard. And then my dad, who has Parkinson's, got very depressed and tried to take his own life. Six times in 12 weeks, he tried to commit suicide. And the conversations you have in that time are unhavable as a family. And we were struggling with business and we were struggling with medicine, but I'm the story guy. I'm the meaning guy, right? I'm the Campbell guy and the Bible guy. And I thought, well, here's an idea. And so one Monday morning on a whim, I sent my dad a question about his life. Tell me about the toys you played with as a kid. He couldn't move his fingers, but he thought about it all week. He dictated it to Siri. Siri spit it out and like it worked for the first time in the weeks. Like something happened. And then I sent another one, tell me about the house you grew up in. And this went on, Austin, week after week. Tell me about how'd you become an Eagle Scout? How'd you join the Navy? How'd you meet mom? And this man who had never written anything longer than a memo in his life backed into writing an autobiography. And it was this incredibly powerful change. And whenever I would tell somebody about it, they would have a similar story. My wife had a headache, went into the hospital and died. My boss is a crook. My daughter tried to cut herself. My brother got diagnosed with stage four cancer. And what everybody was saying in one way or the other was the same thing. Like the life I'm living is not the life I expected. I'm living life out of order. And one day I called my wife and I said, you know what? No one knows how to tell their life story anymore. 
like we all are getting so beaten up by life and we don't really expect it. And it's a pattern that we don't understand. It's not that linear thing that we've been led to expect. It's not all the hero's journey. I have to figure out how I can help. And what I did was I created this thing, as you said, called the Life Story Project. And I crisscrossed the country collecting what became hundreds of life stories of Americans of all ages, all walks of life, all 50 states, people who lost homes, lost limbs, changed careers, changed religions, got sober, got out of bad marriages. In the end, I had a thousand hours of interviews. You're an audio guy. You can appreciate that. 6,000 pages of transcripts. And now here we get to the science of it all. And then I did something I had not done in decades of writing books, which I then got a team of 12 people. And we spent a year coding these stories, combing through them, kind of turning these qualitative stories into quantitative data, analyzing them on 57 different variables, high point, turning point, like what kinds of transitions that we have, how long they last, what's the best advice from friends to get through them, what's the biggest emotion that we struggled with. I built this huge database of how we navigate difficult times. And I just got to tell you, (laughs) I've been working on this book for half a decade. And here it arrives at this moment when the entire planet is going through a life quake, as I call it. And we are all, each of us, everybody listening to this conversation is going through a transition of some kind. It's almost eerie. And that's why I think the response <laughs> to this book has been almost like viscerally, oh my God, this is what I need. That's why we've been through four printings in 10 days. And people are just like, this is the book that we need. And I wish I could have predicted it in a certain way, but here we are. Yeah, I mean, it couldn't be more timely. And I do want to dig into, because I know you've done some work around the happiness of the family unit and different things too. And I think it all kind of ties together, but definitely a a weird kind of thing from the universe to have this book come out when it did. I'm curious too, from a logistical standpoint, I've always been really interested. And of course, we're into data here too. And we've done a couple of projects similar to where we've compiled thousands of studies and tens of thousands of pages of transcripts, like what was it like to find these people? Did you just post up kind of like Anthony Bourdain style at a bar and find people in transitions? Was there a process to getting in contact with them ahead of time? How did you find so, people that had these transitions that you could come in and speak with them with? Or about? So I started very locally, right? Yeah, <laughs> start to, all politics is local. I started with people that I knew who had been through interesting transitions. Then everybody that I met Like if I had seen you or we'd had this conversation three years ago, I would have said, so who do you know who's been through an interesting life transition? And there's some couple dimensions here. At one point I said to my wife, I think I'll do people only over 40 because I like want people who've been beaten up by life. Hmm. And she said, no, you're wrong. My wife, Linda Rotenberg is her name. She runs an organization that supports entrepreneurs in 40 countries around the world. And she has about 500 millennials working for her in every corner of the globe. And she's like, no, you're wrong. Everybody has a life story. And even these people in their 20s and 30s that I work with, they also have been beaten up by life. So she's the one who said, forget that idea, do everybody. And she was right. So about two months in, I had been doing this kind of organically. She walks into my office one day here in our home in Brooklyn, and I said, Linda, I think I can get 25 states. And this will tell you a lot about my marriage. She said, get 50 or shut up, and then walked out of the room. (laughs) So at that point, I realized I have to be more intentional. And so at the end of every conversation, I would say this. I then wanted to make sure, obviously, that I met all the demographics and diversity and those kinds of questions. And then what would happen, Austin, is I would be in the – I don't know if this happens to you since you are reaching out to all sorts of people. I would wake up in the middle of the night and I would think, oh, 
I need somebody who had a white collar job who then became a farmer. And it turns out there's an association that helps people. So I have a former model who became a lettuce farmer. I have a former veteran in Iraq who was blown up by an IED and had narcolepsy and then is a farmer in North Carolina. And so like I would come up with a category of something that I want and then I would go seeking the people out and then I put it on social media and it sort of metastasized. And in the end, I didn't have any trouble finding people. Delaware was hard, actually. But Chris Coons, <laughs> the senator of Delaware, actually, turned out to have gone to law school with my wife. And I wrote him and I said, will you help me find somebody in Delaware? And he said, I'll do it. So I have a sitting U.S. senator. <laughs> Man, it's just like classic referrals and working the connection list, it sounds like. <laughs> but the people were the variety of experiences. I mean, I have four people who died and came back to life. A quarter of my stories involve addiction of some kind. I have people who were in cults, former white supremacists. I mean, national country music singer who became a pastor, a two-time cancer survivor who climbed Mount Everest, the army interpreter who found Saddam Hussein. So the diversity is just astonishing. But that's what the coding found. What the coding found, and actually something else that, that I would say that went wrong in the course of this, is that I assumed going in that how you handle a work setback, or we can get into this in a second, a life quake as I call it, how you handle a work life quake versus a family life quake versus losing your legs versus facing an addiction, each of them would be different. And it turned out that I was just flat wrong, that the toolkit, the structure of these life transitions is similar. The tools are similar. And that ended up being one of the revelations, like where the science came in was finding out that there is a structure. It's not how we've been told they work. Once you understand that structure, you can navigate these transitions more effectively. There are tools you can use, and they are the same across gender, across age, across the types of transitions. And that's what's exciting, that my book unveils the first new model for how to navigate life transitions in 50 years. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. That's so fascinating, and it's definitely a tee up for the question. So share with us, what are some of the main takeaways and some of the main tools in this toolkit that kind of universally expands how we can handle transitions? So let's work our way to the toolkit and let's just take a step back. So the big idea that emerged from all of these data analytics and from the spreadsheet is that the linear life is dead. Okay. So what I mean by a linear life is every culture, it turned out there was this moment in this process where like I pulled a book off a shelf and the whole bookcase opened and it turned out there was a whole nother library that I had never been invited into. (laughs) And like what I found in that other room, which is an idea that's new to me, but that I've really become quite passionate about, which is the idea that every culture kind of has a paradigmatic life course that people are expected to follow. So in the ancient world, they, back to your Campbell or the Bible or scripture, any of these things, they didn't have linear time. So they thought that life was a cycle. That's what they understood, like farming, right? Every season, turn, turn, turn. Hmm. By the Middle Ages, they believed, and of course I have, as you've seen in the book, these images, they believe that life is a staircase up to middle age and then a staircase down. So straight up, then straight down. That means no new love at 40, no new career at 50, no retiring and moving and starting a new venture in your 60s, like straight up, straight down, incredibly unforgiving. And what's interesting about that is that's exactly the inverse of what we were told in the 20th century, which is that life is a trough at middle age and then you climb out of it, right? So since the birth of science, Now we can geek out about the science here for a second. Since the birth of science 100 plus years ago, everything kind of modeled on the industrial backbone of of the economy was linear. So Piaget says childhood development goes in stages. Freud says there's psychosexual stages. Erickson, the eight stages of development. In fact, Erickson says this is modeled on the conveyor belt, the industrial kind of line of production. The five stages of grief the hero's journey. These are all linear constructs of life. And this reaches its peak in the 70s. A New York Magazine writer named Gail Sheehy writes a book called Passages, which I often, in my generation, it's the book our mothers all read. For you, it might be a book that your grandmother read. But Passages sold 20 million copies and was one of the 20 best-selling books of the 20th century. And it says everyone does the same thing in their 20s and their 30s, and then everybody has a midlife crisis at 39 and a half. And we can kind of chuckle at it now, but the idea of the midlife crisis, which I'm sure everybody just kind of believes is true, was popularized by this book. This all turns out to be bunk. It's just not true. But even in my conversations, people said, oh, I had my first midlife crisis at 27 and a half, or I had my first midlife crisis at 54. That'll tell you how inelastic and inexact this is as a scientific matter. So that linear life which manifests itself, certainly in my generation, as the idea that you're going to have one job, one home, one relationship, one spirituality, one source of happiness, right? You are going to be a type. You're going to have one of everything. That's all gone. And it's been replaced by what I call in this book, the nonlinear life. And that involves many more changes so that my data show that we go through three dozen what I call disruptors in the course of our lives. And these disruptors can be as small as moving, having an accident, spraining your ankle, or as big as getting cancer, losing your job, or a tornado, a pandemic. So most of these disruptors, 
there's 52 of them is the category. I call them the deck of disruptors. So we go through one disruptor every 12 to 18 months. I mean, that's more often than most people see a dentist. And most of them we get through, but one in 10 of them becomes a massive life change. And that's what I call a life quake. And the life quake is kind of bigger on the Richter scale of consequences and has aftershocks that last for years. And the signature piece of data is that it takes us five years to get through the life transitions that come out of it. And so you think three to five times in our lives, we go through a life quake, it takes us four, five, six years to get through. That's 25 years. That's half of our adult lives that we're going through transition. Like you or someone, you know, someone in your household, someone in your family is going through one right now. That was the idea. And then this book comes out at a moment when, hello, we're all going through them. And that's what's so fascinating. And that then leads us to the tools of how to get through them. But what we're going through now, what we're experiencing is a life quake. In this case, it's an involuntary life quake, though some of them are, in fact, volunteer. There's a lot to unpack there. And I'm curious, too, you had mentioned something before we started recording about how different generations kind of embrace this this thought that we don't live linear lives. And when you go through the list of the things that people expected to have in their linear life, I mean, I think through jobs, spirituality, not trends, because that almost seems to be kind of below like a transition, but I can definitely see in my life that it is not linear. I mean, nothing about my life has been linear, but is there a reason that maybe older generations might hold on to this view of the linear life more than like, say, a millennial and newer? Or is it kind of like the way we were raised, the way we were taught to deal with transitions or maybe avoid transitions or avoid the emotional side? So there are five storylines in my book, love, work, body, identity, and beliefs. So people tend to be kind of linear in parts of their lives and nonlinear. Like, so if you had a linear, are you in an interfaith marriage? Like half of Americans, for example, are in an interfaith or interdenominational marriage. You've moved a lot, I think, in your life. So you've had nonlinear professional, nonlinear beliefs, maybe, but maybe a linear relationship, right? You're, you've been in the same relationship for a while. Yeah, I've been in the same relationship for years and just had a kid. But when you think about it, like you hit the nail on the head for a number of things. I mean, so I started working when I was in high school, had different jobs in college. I had a job that moved me around afterwards. When it comes to moving, I mean, my parents got divorced when I was in high school. I think we lived in in five or six different houses during the four years I was in high school. When I started reading Joseph Campbell, weirdly enough, it kind of like opened up my eyes. It's not a way to say it, but I started exploring down like different faiths, right? Like questioning why Mm -hmm. is the reason that I have this faith? Well, it's because I was born into it and that's what I was told to believe. And I'm still a Christian, but I went through a phase in college and afterwards where I like heavily investigated all these beliefs that I'd had, right? So I almost kind of embrace nonlinear in some aspects. But then if you look like my marriage, I love the linear aspect of that, right? It's just certain different things. But I just feel like it's almost a foregone conclusion for me. Like I would assume life is not linear, but then I look at some different generations, different people I know, and it's almost kind of like revered to have a linear life. So here's what I hear in that story. Um, Remember, this all began with my collecting life stories and having conversations like the one that you just shared in part, except the ones I've been doing were two, three, four hours. So what I would say, one of the unexpected things for me was that this idea of nonlinearity, that there is change, that Xers get this much more intuitively than boomers and millennials much more intuitively than the Gen Xers, okay? I think there's a lot of reasons for this, right? So that your generation, the peak year for divorce in America is 1979. So 
Therefore, your generation grew up kind of in a post-normalizing of divorce culture. So right there, once you do that, once you go through that, that is a defining nonlinear experience in your life at a very definitional moment in your life, which allows you to be open to more nonlinear explorations, okay? But then also, because you had nonlinearity in your relationship life growing up, perhaps that's why you sought out linearity in your relationships today, okay? But by all of these metrics, okay, that's what I would hear in that story, right? So what's interesting about this to me is by every metric, as I said, half of Americans change faith in the course of their lives, four in 10 Americans are in interfaith marriage. Millennials will have 15.2 jobs and 11.7 moves. We know that openness to sexual fluidity, there are 72 different gender identifications on Facebook, okay? So your generation grew up with sexual fluidity, sexual identity, transgender, interracial relationships, a whole series of things that would have been completely anathema or unheard of when I, who was born in 1964, was growing up. And so one of the interesting things that I uncovered in working on the Life Story Project, as I called it, and then what became the book Life is in the Transitions, is that there is what I call a transition gap between baby boomer 60-something parents and their millennial children in their 20s and 30s. So that the parents are looking at their children and saying, wait a minute, wait, you're having a baby before you get married? Or like, you're quitting one job when you don't even know what the next job is going to be? Or you're moving to a new town when you don't even know what you would do when you would get there? So one of the reasons for this kind of transition gap is that the boomers are still haunted by the ghost of linearity. So we, the people in their 50s and 60s and 70s, grew up at a time where these kinds of job hopping, relationship changing, sexual orientation, morphing, experimentation with faith, moving around, all these different things, they were not told that, so they still are haunted by it. They're still living the same nonlinear life, but it's harder for them. Hmm. Yeah, I think I see that, and that makes a ton of sense. I want to just transition a little bit and give the people what they want, but let's dig into some of these tools in the toolkit of how we can better handle transitions. So if I'm dealing with a transition right now, which I think we all are in some degrees with COVID and, you know, the lack of hanging out in person socially, what can we do to make these transitions easier? Okay. So the first thing I would say is that the life quake that you experience might be voluntary or involuntary, okay? You guys like data? Here's some data. 47% of the life quakes that we go through are voluntary, okay? That means we change jobs, we move, we choose to have a child, we cheat on our spouse. 53% are involuntary. Our spouse cheats on us. We get fired from a job. We go through a hurricane, a pandemic arrives. Now, it's interesting. So as I mentioned earlier, I'm technically kind of a tail end of the baby boomer, but really I'm on the cusp between the boomers and the Xers. I looked at this and was like, whoa, 47%. Yeah, cool. Like we still have control over our lives. I had these 12 coders I mentioned earlier. They were all millennials. They were like, whoa, 53% of the life picks in our life are involuntary. <laughs> like really? I can't control my life? They were like upset by that. But, you know, they're not old enough to have had kids with special needs, right? Or to have lost a job or to have a parent have cancer at an inopportune time or a spouse. But my reason for going through that was to say the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary. You have to make Mm. the choice to lean in and go through the steps. So step number one, we're all in this life quake now and we're going to be for a couple of years. It's deceptive. We're all going through this together, but the life transition that we're all going to do is going to be different. 
So someone may have lost a job, someone else may have lost a loved one, somebody else may need to move or downsize, somebody else might be a primary caretaker for a child and suddenly that child is not going to school and you have to rejigger the parenting responsibilities. So the life goes voluntary and voluntary, but the transition has to be voluntary. Now, once you get into that transition, you're likely to feel one of two things, either chaotic and out of control. Like I need to make a 217 point to-do list and I need to go into it and I'm going to master it and be the king of my domain or the queen of my domain. Or you feel sluggish and stuck in place and you're in a fetal position on your bed. Like you just can't move. The reason is, is because you think I'm the only one going through this. I'm never going to make it and I have no idea what to do. Here, in this regard, I'm here to help because when you look at enough of them, as I have done, and certain patterns do appear. So the first pattern is that life transitions involve three phases. And the three phases are the long goodbye, where you say goodbye to the old you, the old way of life, the messy middle, where you shed certain habits and create new habits, and the new beginning, where you unveil your new self. So now, for the first century, the reason I said this is the first new model for life transitions is everybody who's talked about this, going back to the German anthropologist 100 years ago who invented the phrase rites of passage, everybody said that it's aligned. First you say goodbye, then you go through the betwixt in between, and then you have the new beginning. That turned out to be just wrong. Each of us is good at one of these three phases, and we're bad at one. So the good is what I call your transition superpower and your transition kryptonite. So, for example, let's say the long goodbye I don't know, 37%, I think, I don't have the numbers right in front of me, around that, 37, 39% say that this is their most difficult phase because they're people pleasers. They like it. They don't want to admit that they're not going back. Think about the pandemic. Like for the first few months, we all thought we were going to go back. And well, now we know we're not going back. But some people are good. I talked to a woman, Nina Collins, who biracial. Her mother died when she was 19. She had to raise her younger brother. She's gone on to have three marriages and multiple, twice as many jobs. And she said, I'm good at saying goodbye because my mother died early. I underattached to things. Hmm. And then I get stuck in the middle. I talked to a guy named Rob Adams who was hired to run the Simon Pierce Glass Company. It's a family company in Vermont. He starts a month after the Great Recession. Sales drop by a quarter in the first month. And so he's like, I was bad at saying goodbye. Like I wanted this job. I just moved my family. I liked being a leader. I liked my colleagues. But once I got to the messy middle... Turns out I'm good. I made lists. I called people. And like within a few months, he moved his family to Africa to run a nonprofit. There are even people who were bad at the new beginning. So the worst period, I think 49% in my study were the worst at the messy middle. 37% were worst at the long goodbye. And that leaves 13%, if I've done my math correctly, who were bad at the new beginning. And you'd think everybody would like that because they're through it. I talked to a woman, Lisa Ludovici, grew up in a broken home. Father was estranged. Mother didn't even come to her college graduation. She was homeless for a while. She went to work for America Online when it was nothing and then became a huge internet ad executive. She had three migraines a week from age three to 43. And then she logs onto a conference call one day. Her colleagues are complaining how sour she is. She walks in the next day, quits on the spot, cuts her cable, doesn't go shopping, doesn't go out to eat, saves her pennies. She's watching local access television. She sees somebody say that they help people live better lives. She's like, that's what I want to do. She enrolls in life coach school, moves to Santa Fe. On day one, her head's on the desk and the teacher says, well, what are you doing? She's like, oh, don't worry. I'm just having a migraine. I've had three a week for 40 years. Teacher says, come with me. Takes her back into the office, puts her in a chair, hypnotizes her 
Lisa's never had a migraine since. Today, she's the country's leading medical hypnotist. And she works with military veterans. And she said, I had this amazing life. I went through this, frankly, incredible transition. She was embarrassed to update her LinkedIn profile because she thought her friends would think it was weird. So she writes and rewrites it for six months until she finally presses send and she's then liberated. So one of the things I try to do in the book is walk you through figuring out which of these three phases you're good at. Let's start you there. Let's build up some confidence and then you'll work your way to the part that you're less good at. It's interesting. I mean, embracing the new self, like you said, just seems like something that wouldn't be that difficult because it kind of implies you've been through the journey. But now that you've shared that story, I'm thinking of all sorts of friends who have you know, had their struggles and found some modicum of success, but like, don't want to post on social media. They're like, tell Bruce about what you've been doing. And they're like, ah, Bruce doesn't want to hear that. Yeah. Even like if it is a perfect introduction, it's almost kind of embracing the other end. It's not embarrassment necessarily, but it's a lack of comfort. Okay. So let's talk about this. You talk about the tools. So then I have within these three phases, I've got seven tools and you just brought up the first one and I'm glad you brought it up because the first one is you have to accept that you're in the situation and the emotions that you're dealing with. So I looked hundreds of people in the eye and I said, having a conversation just like this, okay, Austin, what's the biggest emotion that you struggled with during your transition? So let me just ask you, think of a transition, one of these exploring your faith, right? Or moving or job career. What was the biggest emotion that you've struggled with in times of change? Oh man, Bruce, on the spot here, but I love it. I gotta say... You became a dad. What was the biggest emotion you struggled with when you became a dad recently? Anxiety. I thought for sure I would be a dad that was like very much, ah, let them run around and let them fall down. No big deal. But I've got a 19-month-old little girl and I struggle to let her walk 10 feet on the playground without me being right next to her. It's taken me very much by surprise. I thought I'd be like the cool, relaxed parent, but I think I'm the exact opposite. Number one thing people struggle with is fear. Fear of the unknown. Is something going to go wrong? Can I pay the bills? Am I going to be sick? Number one, fear. Number two, sadness. Okay. I liked the old life. I liked that job. I liked when I could go out with my friends. I liked being single and having my partner to myself. And then suddenly there's a 19 month old in the picture. Number two, <laughs> sadness. Number three, made me want to bring up this one. You mentioned this earlier. Number three, shame. This was a little surprising to me, but it was so, people are ashamed. Oh my gosh, I can't believe I drank so much and I made a jackass out of myself. Or I can't believe I lost my job. Or I'm ashamed that my child has special needs or has an addiction. Or I'm ashamed that I can't afford this house anymore and I have to downsize. So shame. So the first tool is to accept it, right? To identify this emotion, say it out loud. Just even having you say that out loud is empowering, right? When you share something, you feel better about it. There's one of the later tools is sharing it. But the second is how do people market and like tame it? Some people write it down. Talk to a woman who left a corporate job to move to Maine to help people manage their second homes. And she wrote her fears down so every morning she would see them. Some people do what I would do, which is buckle down. Stop whining, kid, and just work your way through it. But 80% of people, Austin, 8-0, use a ritual of some kind, okay? They hold a farewell ceremony. They bury something in the backyard. Um, they, I talked to a guy, Fred Schlomer, who was in a loveless marriage for 30 years, just up north of you in Kentucky. And he got out, came out as gay, and he went to a sweat lodge to like schwitz his old life out of him. I talked to a woman, Lisa Ray Rosenberg, had an awful year 
She was a bone marrow donor to her brother. She had a big falling out with her mother. She lived in Southern California. She went on 52 first dates. She actually made a spreadsheet of everything she wore on every first date because she only went on seven second dates and she didn't want to wear the same thing on a second date. She's like, this is not working. I got to do something. Her biggest fear was heights. She jumped out of an airplane. A year later, she was married with a child. So we need to take your anxiety, your fear, and we need to do something with it, right? Because it's going to sit there until you do something with it. Maybe you're bad at saying goodbye, or maybe you're good because you've said goodbye a lot and you're stuck in the middle. I don't know. But we got to do something with this fear. And maybe your daughter needs to get a bloody knee and you're going to find out that that's part of life and it'll toughen her up and you can stop being so overprotective. But we have to do something, some ritual that will mark kind of that will contain it and tame it and say to yourself and to others, I'm like leaving that old self behind. And now I'm going in to the new self. Because if you don't do this now, and you've got 15 year olds as I do, I have 15 year old identical girls, and they're now going out and you're not going to be hovering over them. Like, so rituals, that was an interesting thing. So the first of these tools is accept it. And the second is to mark it in some way to contain it to say the past is past. I'm not going back there. Now I got to go into the messy middle to come. So you're telling me that it's not socially acceptable for me to tag along on a 15-year-old date because I was planning on it. You're telling me that's not allowed? I'm saying it's not in your daughter's interest, nor is it in your <laughs> interest. The job, you, you mentioned my parenting. I did write a book, Secrets of Happy Families, about this. And yes, your job as a parent, it's very unusual. Your job, when your child is born, your child is entirely dependent on you. And your job is to put yourself out of business. Your job is to make your child independent from you. And well, the only so, way you're going to do that is to give your child more control over their life at an age-appropriate way, kind of one step at a time. But yes, your job is to make yourself obsolete. Well said. Well said. You know, I want to encourage people to go and check out the book, Life's in the Transitions, Mastering Change at Any Age. But before we go, there was one other tool that I found in my research that I thought was pretty interesting, and it's share it. So seek wisdom from others. So I'm curious too, because as someone who's very selective on who I get advice from and also what I really share my deepest thoughts and emotions with, mm -hmm. how can we make sure that we're not only like seeking the wisdom from the appropriate parties, but that we're also sharing the deeper parts of us with people that deserve to have it? Well, first of all, that's extremely well said. And I will say, guess what? I got some data on that. So let me work my way <laughs> there. It. So the long goodbye is marked and accepted. In the messy middle, there's basically two things, right? And there's so much more about this in the book. You shed certain habits and you create new habits. People turn to incredible creativity. They sing, they dance, they, you know, they write. They, it's just powerful. Love those stories. And in the new beginning, you ritualize the end of the transition and you unveil your new self. And these tools, six of them are more or less attached to kind of one of the three phases. But the one you just brought up, share it, is not connected to any of the phases because for some people it's like once and for some people it's all the time. So listening to you, you might be the person who doesn't want to share it at every step along the way, but there will be a moment in the middle where you share that you have an anxiety about your 19 month old and then someone comes into your life and gives you a piece of advice, right? People talk about these magical outsiders that come in and give them a piece of information or introduce them to somebody or listen at the right moment that they just need it at that moment. So you might be that type. But I asked everybody, did you get a piece of advice from a friend or a loved one or a mentor that was very helpful? And I was surprised that the answers were different. So I set out to quantify it. And what I found was that we have a phenotype of what kind of advice we like. Some people like, 
and I'm going to ask you in a second, so you might as well listen, which one you're like. So some people like comforters. I love you, Austin. I trust you. You'll get through it, buddy. I know I'm cheering you on. That was the most popular, but it's not everybody. Some people like nudgers. I love you, Austin, but mm, maybe you should try this, right? Or maybe you should sit down and let your daughter bump her head because it'll be fine, right? Or maybe you should go on Match.com or maybe you should go to AA or maybe it's time to look for a new job. So that's the second most popular. So comforters are the most popular, nudgers next. And then some, I'm kind of like this myself, they like slappers. Like, I love you, Austin, but get over yourself. I'm tired of you whining. Like, I'm just not going to listen to this anymore. Go do this. And I learned this because somebody was sitting in my office where I'm talking to you from right now, and she was telling me a story. She'd lost both of her parents and a job. She thought she was going to take over the company, and she didn't. And she said, yeah, I was sitting there whining to one of my friends one day, and she slapped me like Cher slaps Nicolas Cage in Moonstruck. And so I was like, oh, my God, slappers. Like, that's a category. Okay. So people have different phenotypes. So before I give you the piece of advice that you asked for, so which one are you? I think for people that I'm having conversations with that are like very surface level, I think I'm like the majority comforters, right? If it's just with someone I don't know that well, it's like, okay, yeah, I appreciate the warm and fuzzy feelings. When it comes to someone that I'm really going to take their feedback to heart, Mm -hmm. I, I actually prefer a slapper because if I'm not doing the right thing and it's coming from the source that I trust to give me that information, then I'd like to know if I'm doing something wrong or at least get that feedback. So if it's someone that's like a dinner party and we're just sharing things, comforters are fine. If I'm having a deep conversation with a mentor or a family member that I highly respect, I respect the slapper. And I'm a caveat with I may not always agree with you, but I appreciate that kind of advice. Okay. So this is an interesting dynamic. Through. Okay. First of all, I think that I'm similar. Like from my wife, sometimes I just want comfort. Like I want, <laughs> I want to believe that I'm a good person and that I can get through it. And then once I feel secure, I can take slapping. But what did I do? You told me you made yourself vulnerable, not by choice, but I pulled it out of you. When you <laughs> collect hundreds of life stories, you're good at that. And you told me that you felt anxious and fearful about being a dad. And what did I do? I probably nudged you, right? And I said, you're going to have to pull back a little bit, right? The mistake that I make in this dynamic is I assume you want nudging, okay? So the question I think you asked me, I can't remember exactly how you phrased it, which is what do we do? The answer is don't assume that the kind of feedback you want from a loved one is the type of feedback that the person you're talking to wants. Hmm. In fact, you can just simply ask, would you like me to comfort you, nudge you, or slap you? I mean, even that is an empowering thing. So this leads to an interesting point. Austin, which is, we were talking earlier that this book has arrived at this moment when we're all in a life transition. And I in no way expected that to happen, but I've learned something interesting. Like one of the reasons that this book has, I think, exploded is because so many of us are going through a transition and this book is helpful. But a bigger audience turns out to be people who were co-piloting someone else going through a transition. Mm. So not only is it isolating and you feel alone and just against the world. When I had cancer, I would look out my window and I would think you can walk and you can walk and I'm on crutches for two years and none of you understands what I'm going through. Like you feel isolated and alone, but if you have loved ones in your life, it could be a roommate, it could be a partner, it could be a parent, it could be a colleague. They want to help you. They don't know what to do. So it turns out a kind of an even bigger market for this book is the toolkit for the co-pilot because it will give you something that you can recommend, that you can nudge the person going through the transition that will help them get through it more effectively. That's a huge point. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think 
obviously we've gone through the data of how many transitions and even how many major life quakes you're going to go through in your life, but they're not going to coincide with everyone else's. Right. And like, we all need to have relationships in our lives to stay healthy. And, you know, humans, I think yearn for those relationships. So you're going to have other people dealing with these. So it sounds to me kind of like whether you're the pilot or the co-pilot in the scenario, you're going to be dealing with transitions your entire life. And that leads, I think, to the last point and the last piece of data. And the last point is that transitions work. 90% of the people that I spoke to said that their transition came to an end. So whatever you're struggling with, if you lay in bed last night, if you're a worrier, or if you got up this morning with a cup of coffee and stared out the window and wondered, or if you just were driving down the road and missed a turn because you were scared about something, whatever you're struggling with, what I want to say to you right now is that I was where you were. And I've met hundreds of people who were far worse. One of the curious reactions to this book and people reading and thinking, it makes me feel better because the problems that those people are dealing with is a lot worse than what I'm dealing with. So what I want to say to you is that the process can succeed if you believe in it. So whatever you're struggling with, if you come on this journey with me and you meet these people, you're going to find, they're going to give you hope and inspiration, but more, they're going to give you practical things, something you can do tonight, tomorrow, this weekend, next week, three months from now, so that whatever you're struggling with, whatever life transition you're in, we can make it go a little bit better and a lot more effectively. There is knowledge out there. We can get through this together. Very inspirational note. And I don't want to tip the hand too far, but one of the questions that I always like to end these interviews with is if you could give our audience one piece of homework, something that they could preferably do in the next five days, what would that homework be? When we go through a life quake, what happens is that our immune system gets weakened and multiple changes descend on us at the same time. This is something I had not read about in any of the literature on personal change that was a big, bright, blinking pattern that appeared. Just when you lose your job, you wreck your car. Just when you're about to move, your mother-in-law needs surgery and your daughter turns out to have special needs. Like I call this a pileup. So we're all going through a life quake. And many people here are going to go through or feel like they're going through multiple transitions at the same time. That can be overwhelming. So echoing the idea that I shared earlier, that the life quake can be voluntary or involuntary, but the life transition must be voluntary. My question, my assignment, my request in the next five days is that you pick of all the possible transitions you've thought of. You want to change your relationship. You want to move. You want to change your job. You want to become more religious or less religious, or you want to lose 25 pounds, or you want to get sober. Pick one. Pick one life transition and say, you know what? Starting now, I want to focus on this. And once I get underway on that transition, then I can look at other ones. You can't change everything at once. Pick one. Start there. You'll build from strength. And you're going to make all the transitions in your life go more effectively because you're going to finally feel like you have agency, like you're mastering the skills and you can do it better. Incredible advice. And it's actually something that's been very top of mind for me as well as just kind of mastering the foundations, taking off one piece at a time and then building on that strength. I think that's great homework. Bruce, you've been so generous with your time and the information. I'd love to have you back on the show again to kind of dig in even deeper. There's so many things you've covered from the journeys through walking the Bible and everything else. I feel like we could talk for hours and hours and hours, but I want to be respectful of your time for at least this round. Tell the audience, where can they find you, dig in, learn more, buy the book, buy your previous books, see all the different projects you're working on? Where can we go to find you? 
Thank you very much for that invitation. It's a total pleasure. I'm happy to continue the conversation anytime. I'm Bruce Feiler, so that's F-E-I-L-E-R, and I'm on all your various internet ways of connecting. I have a site with all of my books and two TED Talks and that kind of stuff. I'm at Bruce Feiler on Twitter and Instagram and LinkedIn and Bruce Feiler author on Facebook. New book is Life is in the Transitions, Mastering Change in a Nonlinear Age. It's available everywhere. It does turn out that Amazon reviews matter and in ratings. So that's been an interesting thing to discover as this book has been out of stock multiple times since it's been into the world. And please do keep in touch. Ask me any question, anything may I can be helpful. I am going to be continuing and gathering more stories for a new project I'm just beginning. So I'd love to keep in touch and keep the conversation alive. Absolutely. Love to chat anytime, Bruce. And we'll definitely have you on for a round two. But thank you again for your time. This has been a fascinating interview. Such a timely book and such a great message to get out there right now. Thank you for coming on the show and sharing all this wisdom. My pleasure, Austin. We'll go through this, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm gonna give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, everything we discuss, and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. <laughs> <laughs>